Hello and welcome to the Four Wheel Dive Podcast. I'm Tim Masso, he's Kyle Lindsay. The Drive and Dive starts now. Welcome back from SEMA, Kyle. What's happening? Oh my gosh, so many things are happening right now. And for the most part, it's happening on your front because I just got back from Europe. And as you might have noticed, this isn't the usual command bunker. So I'm down catching up from jet lag and you're recovering from a trip your own. You got to tell me all about SEMA 2022. Oh yeah, it was awesome. So I haven't been to SEMA in probably four years or so now. Um, this this will actually be my fourth time going. Uh, SEMA's wild. Like anybody who, unless you're living under a rock, or, you know, if, you, if you're on social media during the week of SEMA, you're going to see some crazy cars. You're going to see a lot of cool unveils and everything. And uh, this year was definitely no exception uh, being that i didn't go last year I, I you know wasn't able to see you know the the crowd difference but from what i'm told last year just with everything going on um wasn't wasn't near as many presence of people and manufacturers and this year was absolutely exploding you know busting at the seams so many people everywhere <laughs> it was it was awesome now, let me ask you a quick question, because it is the Specialty Equipment Manufacturers Association. There's a sense that this is all aftermarket, but there is some manufacturer buy-in. Like some of the OEMs are there and represented with customs. Yeah, so basically SEMA is not open to consumers. You either have to be in the industry, you have to be a buyer, you have to be media, which I'm, I'm classified as, as media. Um, so, I mean, you, you just have to be in the industry in some way, shape or form. And, you know, you'll, you'll have, you know, exhibitionists and all that stuff. And you'll have people, you know, walking around to different people, uh, you know, placing big orders for things and whatnot. So, I mean, there's just a ton of stuff happening all at the same time. Yeah, and definitely, I think it's fascinating because a lot of the stuff you use in the shop can be seen at SEMA. We were just talking about a Holly Sniper fuel injection kit. That's a major product you use. Did you see them there at SEMA? I did, yeah. Um, they didn't have quite as big of a, a presence as I was expecting, being that you know they, they now represent, I think, over 70 brands now. Holly has one big umbrella. <laughs> you know, for, for me, you know, everybody goes to SEMA for different reasons. The most important thing for me is networking. So when I go to SEMA, you know, I'm, I'm media, I'm taking pictures, I'm, you know, reporting on this and that and whatnot. But it's also a phenomenal opportunity for me to talk to sponsors face to face and, you know, introduce myself to hopefully new sponsors. So we met a lot of people, uh, put a lot of faces to some emails, which was awesome, and talked to a huge list of brands, <laughs> which I think is going to really pay off with with helping uh, the YouTube builds into 2023. And that's excellent to hear because I know we've had interest in sponsors in the past on the podcast, pending listeners, pending. Hopefully. 
<laughs> I think we'll be heading in that direction someday, but only for the best. Now, I want to talk about some of the highlights you saw, because there are always, I don't want to call them best in show candidates, but there are some exhibits, some builds that really stand out and some products that stand out. What really caught your attention? So with all of the different unveils happening, um, probably the few things that stood out to me, I mean, there's, let me, let me preface this by saying that there are a incredible amount of cars there from some extremely talented people. I mean, some of the, the hand fabrication and the bespoke coach work on some of these vehicles is something that I cannot even dream of building Maybe at this point, maybe later, we'll see. But <laughs> um, I know one uh, couple, a couple of guys uh, known as the Ring Brothers. They had a whole uh, fleet almost of of completed builds that were unveiling at different times, and they were competing in the the battle of the builders that SEMA hosts, along with a whole bunch of other guys. Like uh, one of the guys, he was younger. He was, I think, in his mid twenties. He built a. I think it was a second gen Corvette basically mashing up one of those cars with a C7 ZR1 Corvette. <laughs> it was like all of the running gear and everything from a ZR1 and a C2 second generation Corvette body. It was spectacular unfortunately he didn't win Battle of the Builders. It was one of the Ring Brothers vehicles which their stuff is next level but i mean it, it, it's just it's hard to know where to start i mean i saw i saw a plymouth superbird with a hellcat swap <laughs> it was awesome oh hell yeah well here there have been some tools that have transformed my experience both with watchmaking i'm actually at my watchmaking bench today as opposed to my office and then also my work on my racing bikes and my mountain bikes and, you know, sometimes you wind up with a tool that you never anticipated that changes your entire perspective on shop work. And as exciting as builds are, SEMA is also about the tools and the technology that builders use. Were there any products that really stood out as above and beyond or like life changing for a shop guy? Oh, absolutely. Products and education, I might add. Um, one thing that's really cool about SEMA is that they put on uh, these these education programs. It's it's all throughout the show. There's different classes and um, I guess uh, forums, panels, whatever you want to call them, like all throughout the week. And uh, me and my wife actually attended three, and they were you know headed up by you know, leaders in the industry like Art Morrison and uh, you know just all all sorts of people. Um, so that was really awesome being able to get more of an inside look at what it takes to run a restoration business. You know the the business behind restoring cars, you know, the, the, the kind of passion that you got to have to, you know, drive it and, uh, and all that good stuff. But as far as shop equipment is, you know, all of the who's who, uh, for one of all of the performance industry from, you know, Holly to original parts group to American auto wire, like everybody, the who's who is there. But at the same time, you know, you've got Snap-on, you've got Harbor Freight, you've got, you know, up and coming uh, companies, you know, coming into the into the US, like, you know, people that have been more so known in Europe for like shop equipment and stuff. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, diving into the US market for the first time and, and introducing their stuff. Like, um, I'm trying to remember what they were called. But uh, this one company I talked to, they sell very high end, like, uh, shop storage 
solutions like full-on cabinetry and everything and um like portable exhaust uh removal machines so if you wanted to run your vehicle uh in the shop if you didn't have an engine run stand you were trying to break a motor in you can hook up these pipes to the exhaust and duct you know the fumes and stuff outside um i mean that was just one we talked to people who sold you know full-on paint booths um i mean just it's just a lot of stuff yeah so let me ask you about the kind of cars on the show floor because i know sema if we go back, let's say 15 to 20 years, you know, it was fast and the furious. It was import tuners. It was front wheel drive. It was big boosted fours. Uh, it was a very different landscape. What kind of cars did you see on the floor? I'm sure you still have imports, but boy, Detroit Muscle has made a comeback in the last 10 years. Yeah, there's there's actually a lot more variety than I would expect. You know, there's different trends happening right now, like like you're like you're talking about. Um, I mean, there first and foremost, there's a huge, huge truck scene of all different shapes and sizes and and, and backgrounds and whatnot. Um, there's a lot of a lot of bro dozers as we as we like to say, <laughs> you know, the big old things with the, the air ride suspension, and you know, you're wondering how in the world are you gonna climb up in that thing with the train horns and all that stuff. You got you got a bunch of those, but there's also a whole lot of uh, you know, C10s like square bodies and then earlier C10s and um you know, even trucks from the 50s. Trucks are hot trucks and blazers and 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 all of those from like the 60s through the 80s they are hot so there was a whole bunch of those everywhere but at the same time i saw a lot of imports i saw you know some fast and the furious tribute type things saw some rare jdm cars there were there was even a pretty significant uh, low rider and donk present uh presence believe it or not and you know truth be told it was some of the nicest quality work of of both uh categories that i've seen in a long time it was actually the first time i've seen some like like old school low rider builds in person i mean the level of detail that these guys put into their cars is, is something to be reckoned with this one guy it was a 64 impala coupe and uh, or hardtop and uh, the guy spent five years painting it by himself you know it had all of the gold leaf it had all of the hand engraved chromed parts like on the body but uh, the paint it had eight gallons of clear coat on it alone <laughs> <laughs> and it was amazing and like you know one dunk that i saw i think it was a uh impala convertible like in the 70s you know it had the big wheels candy paint and all that stuff and it had a twin turbo ls in it i mean it, guys guys are getting so creative it's unreal i mean it's really exciting to see so it sounds like one of the major trends is not so much hot rodding but resto modding yeah yeah, there's, I mean, like we've talked about before, you know, this is an amazing time to be an automotive enthusiast because, you know, not only the technology that's offered right now, but the aftermarket support, you can pretty much build anything to your heart's desire, even if you're not, you know, a fabricator at heart. I mean, there's, there's anything from full on bolt on builds to a complete bespoke handcrafted body. I mean, I saw a 62 Impala hardtop that was just about completely bespoke. 
And I think they said there was over 13,000 hours of just labor in this car. And, you know, most, most restoration shops are anywhere from, you know, 125 an hour to $200 plus an hour. I mean, if you just multiply 13,000 by $100, you can do the math right there. <laughs> That's a big number. I'll also say this. It sounds like SEMA is increasingly not, not just a, a showcase for customs and rest of mods and industry products that you can use in the shop. It's also a bit of an art gallery with the level of craftsmanship. It is. And, you know, there there are vehicles in SEMA that are inop or inoperable, um, trailer, not necessarily trailer queens, but like you well, said, they are just... That's always auto shows. That's always been true of concept cars. Yeah, it's it's just, you know, the, these cars are built to showcase a builder's skill. Like, how, how far can they go? How much detail can they go for? I mean, this, some, some of these vehicles... They're, you don't want to drive them. They're just so pretty and pristine and custom that, I mean, God forbid you get a chip on it or something, it's probably $10,000 worth of damage. <laughs> so basically, it's Pebble Beach for rotters and modders. Yeah, I actually, somebody told me this today. I, I didn't notice or I didn't know about this beforehand. I should have looked, but apparently like a lot of the big, big trucks and stuff like you know apparently there's such a thing called like a bluetooth drive shaft like these guys put all these trucks and stuff together and don't bother like finishing them and they won't have the drive shafts connected <laughs> so it's like the the joke is like oh it's equipped with that new bluetooth drive shaft that's nice <laughs> i'm gonna use that thank you so much you're welcome uh, okay crazy question and i'm only gonna ask this once because i know we've got a lot of traditionalists out there but did EVs or E-crate engines have a presence of any kind? Huge. Huge, relatively speaking. So this year, SEMA had what they called SEMA Electrified, and it was in the South Hall. It took, it took up about a, you know, about a third of the South Hall. Um, it was basically just a, a showcase of you know, aftermarket uh, charging systems, like, you know, if you wanted to install a charging system at your house, it was, um, you know, like Lucid was there with one of their cars. There was uh, several companies that offered like retrofit EV systems. Like if you wanted to take a, you know, a late model Ford F-150 and, you know, gut the gas stuff out and put an EV stuff in there, they, you know, they've got options. But as you walked through the show and, you know, started paying attention, Every now and then, you know, it's just some, you know, random brand would have a vehicle in their booth and it would be, you know, elect and a electrified resto mod. I think I saw it had to have been like a late 60s, like a C2 Corvette. And uh, you know how they've got the emblem on the back deck lid, like yes. below the rear window. Well, that popped up and it had a charge port underneath it. It was a full EV drivetrain and stuff. So there there were quite a number of those, and they were very creative. Um, sorry about that. I forgot to turn my phone off. No, that's okay. That's, that's a, real, <laughs> a real working shop. If you thought that was just a set in the background, it is a real working shop, guys. Yeah, that's it. Um, but yeah, there, was, there, were, there were a lot of EVs there. For, for me, what's interesting about the EV transplants is when you manage to pair an EV 
powertrain with like a manual transmission. Like when people are doing like EV conversions of old Porsche 912s or Volkswagens, that's legitimately cool. I could definitely get into that on the Volkswagen side. I do feel that EV conversions on like real classics need to be revertible just for historical sake, but I could definitely get into the idea of like a Volkswagen camper van with 300 pound feet of torque. That could be fun. There was one of those there I saw in the Nissan booth. They had a truck that was built, um, I think, right down the road from me in South Carolina. I, I don't know this specific model, but it was it was an old Nissan pickup. It had a drivetrain or, or motor, if you will, from a Nissan Leaf. But they had the factory four-speed manual transmission from the truck hooked up to it somehow. And the way they described it was, you know, first gear was like sport mode. It was just like like quick go and then in each higher gear it was almost like putting it more into like a normal and eco mode like you would see in a factory car just it's fascinating you know whether whether you know you're 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 into that kind of stuff or not uh, i mean it's just it's really neat what people are doing you know there was a time when people rebelled against the idea of internal combustion engines because they were emotionally wedded to the idea of horses and donkeys so I, they're great for people who like them, but I don't want to go back to horses and donkeys. And someday I'm sure the EVs are going to find acceptance on some level, even from the hardcore car guys. But we are not, we are not quite ready to let the past go. We're going to talk about some of our favorite engines. That is internal combustion of all time. There have been incredible cars and classic brands and eras and styles, but engines are the heart and soul of the cars we love. And Kyle, you're going to lead us off with the first of our first installment of the Engine Hall of Fame. I was about to say, we're going to have to have several of these Halls of Fames because I wanted to write down all this kind of stuff, and there's just not enough time to go over it. So if we don't cover it, we will cover it in future episodes, I promise. Um, but the first thing that I want to throw out there is the Ford Flathead V8. Yeah, without a doubt. This is the engine that democratized the V8. There were V8s before and there were V8s after, but this changed the landscape of what vernacular cars or common man cars really looked like. Right. You know, like, like you said, the, the, the Flathead V8 wasn't the first. It wasn't, you know, the first mass produced or anything like that. But this thing was produced between 1932 and 1953. What made it stand out amongst, you know, other V8s that were made before that is that this was the first one that was mass produced on a, you know, a consumer level. It was it was the more it was affordable, like. You know, all of the, you know, four-cylinder cars that were made, you know, all the flathead six cars and stuff, you know, finally you have a V8 option and, you know, something that you can actually get up to 60 miles an hour or over because like, you know, Model T and whatnot, it, it couldn't even reach 60 miles an hour. So it was, it was pretty revolutionary for what it was, but, you know, not only that, but it's extremely simple you know simple in architecture simple you know relatively inexpensive to maintain um it wasn't the most efficient motor I mean, and for for those that don't know so the term a flathead um basically means and i've actually got it written down right here so i don't mess it up um so the valves are actually seated in the block and the heads are 
flat. So they're milled perfectly flat. So it basically serves as a lid that just bolts onto the deck. So because of that design compared to, you know, a later overhead valve design, you didn't have near as much, you know, valve efficiency, but again, it made up with the simplicity and low cost. And I will say just from personal experience, they sound amazing. I mean, I think at most they made like a hundred horsepower, maybe 105, somewhere around there. So they weren't very powerful, but they have a whole lot of character. They do. And really, this was the first mass market engine to inspire an aftermarket parts cottage industry, as there were all sorts of modifications, including by people who would like go on to be famous in mainstream auto engineering. The Duntov head was designed for flathead motors. Um, of course, Zora Arcus Duntov went on to engineer the Corvette for decades, but you could hot rod these, you could take them drag racing, you take them circuit racing. They did have some fundamental limitations in heat dissipation uh, because of the volumetric efficiency, but also because the valves were in the block, the exhaust valve ran through the water jacket, so they would tend to run hot. But without a doubt, this was the first great performance engine and the first great performance engine with an aftermarket hop-up industry for the common man. We had super high-end V8s before from the likes of Cadillac and Rolls-Royce and others. This was legitimately an eight for the price of a six, and it remained relevant well into the 1960s when hot rodders were still hopping them up uh, before the Chevy small block V8 became like the standard option for rodders. Finding a, a hot rodded flathead is a lot harder nowadays but it's that much more satisfying when you find one like you can actually still get you know uh, cylinder heads and stuff like that uh, edelbrock i think they used to make some i don't think they make them anymore but you know offenhauser there was a whole bunch of different brands but if you search long and hard enough you, you can still build a, a cool hot rotted flathead it's just you know, unfortunately, it's a lot more expensive to build for not a whole lot of return compared to a small block Chevy or something. But the cool factor is 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 way off the chart. And I know, uh, you know, you were talking about the cooling efficiency and stuff. Those motors actually had two independent water pumps, one on each bank. It makes sense, all things considered. I would also say that the reason you build a hot-rodded flathead in like a 1932 Ford Model 18 these days, it's because you want to put together a period hot-rod build. You want like a snapshot of what the hot rod was in 1952 and 1962. You don't build it because it's the fastest. You build it because in its way, it has a sort of historical authenticity that like a modern day you know, catalog built car with a like a Roddick or a Donovan small block just wouldn't. Right. So what you got for us, Tim? Well, I also want to remember, real quick, folks, remember, there was also a V12 version of that flathead V8. Yes. Throw that oh, out. yes. There was a in the uh, Lincolns. Yes, the Zephyrs and later the Contis. The 1948 Conti, I think, was the last American car to have a V12 engine, and it was a flathead. It only I made almost... about 120 horsepower, but it was a flathead. I almost, I think we talked about it in a previous episode. I, I, I actually saw a Zephyr sitting in the woods in person not too long ago, and a thought crossed my mind. I was like, how cool would that be to put in this Studebaker that I have? <laughs> I've got a picture I drew of a Lincoln Zephyr back there, and that is just a complete coincidence. That was not premeditated. That's All awesome. right. <laughs> so let's talk about something that, to me, represents possibly the ultimate road and track engine of the 1950s. It was made from 1949 to 1992, and it is the Jaguar XK Straight Six. 
So you already know that when an engine's made from 1949 to 1992, that is extraordinary longevity. It was in everything from sports cars to sedans to limousines. And in the 1950s, it won the 24 Hours of Le Mans five times in the Jaguar D-type and C-type race cars. There were many different versions of this through the years, uh, but it almost broke out as a performance option faster than the Chevy small block did because it got all of its major race wins in its first decade. But as late as 1992, which, you know, is like, that's now my lifetime. These were still being sold new manufactured uh, in Jaguar saloons. So first of all, think of the cars that carried this engine, the XK120, the XK140, 150, the D-type, the C-type, the XKE, and the original Jaguar XJS. All of these are legendary vehicles, but what they share is that same engine architecture. Uh, you've got side draft carburetors in most cases. You've got dual overhead cams. You have a very sophisticated engine with a lot of power density. And although it never made hundreds upon hundreds of horsepower, it was always very smooth, reliable, balanced, and extremely torquey. It's got a burble and a rumble and a unique voice that's really only comparable to straight six flatheads of, of the 1930s and 40s. It doesn't sound like a later engine. It's got a wonderfully mechanical sound and a purr to it, which I guess is appropriate for an engine made by Jaguar. Absolutely. And by the way, there were some exceptionally hot versions available in the early 60s. If you were out for a Jaguar lightweight E-Type, you could get a Lucas mechanical fuel injection, which uh, doesn't really come on strong until you're in the upper reaches of the rev band. But if you want to really rev out your racing XK6, you want the Lucas mechanical injection. And when the E-Type lightweight continuations were built by Jaguar in the last decade, uh, they offered either carburation or Lucas. You could choose either one, but they recommended only going with the injection if you were really going to rip it. Oh, that sounds like an enthusiast dream. <laughs> it, it really is. And it's a reliable engine. It's mechanically sound. Uh, you know, they're available like pre-vacuum era. Like by the time you get into the, the XJS and, you know, the vacuum era cars of the 70s and 80s. There's all sorts of other stuff attached to the XK that's not really reputable or enduring or durable. But the XK itself, even if you've got one from the first year, 1949, it goes together like Legos. It's beautifully logical in the way it's laid out. The worst part of a British car is the electronics. And the great thing about the XK is that for its first two decades or so, it was almost purely mechanical. The engine itself is bulletproof. There's something beautiful in simplicity. Yeah, and the great thing about it, too, is you can find them easily today. Parts are still available, not for all versions. Like, if you're looking for a new manufacturer C-type head, you might be searching for a little bit. But for the most part, it was a very well-supported engine. And unlike, for example, the Jaguar V12s, it, it was naturally adaptable to competition at the club level during the 50s and 60s. The V12s would eventually perform in Trans Am and at Le Mans, but the XK was just something like someone working at a local level could understand. And its longevity and its range of success on road and track and the number of cars it was in make it one of the all-time great engines. And also, I think there's something aesthetically pleasing about a legendary straight six that's not German. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I was I was gonna put uh, the Nissan RB motor on my list, but uh, I'll say that for next time. <laughs> All right. Well, what what else do you have for me? Because this this is episode one of what will be a long enduring series. So this is this is probably a given, but I'm gonna go ahead and dive into it anyway. But the Chevrolet small block V8. So this motor. <laughs> It's, it came out in 1955 and is still in production today in its fifth generation. Uh, between GM and their subsidiaries, they have made over 100 million Chevy small blocks. <laughs> and I think that's just Gen 1. <laughs> that is a fact. And it is still in production at a GM plant in Mexico if you want to buy it for like a custom build. It's still in production. Right, you can buy a Gen One small block just like you know would have come in a '67 Camaro. There, there. I don't think there's another motor out there that has more aftermarket support than a Chevy small block. You know, they're 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 easy to work on. Parts are plentiful. They're relatively inexpensive to build. And when I when I say small block, I'm also talking about LS and stuff like that. But I'll I'll get into that in just a second. But that's what I really you know started messing with aside from my you know 240sx project you know i i got into working on chevy small block architecture and that's how i you know cut my teeth with with mechanical work they're just they're really easy to pick up on um i mean you, it's a push rod v8 you know just like the ones that are being made today overhead valve design um you know and, and they're, they're they're plentiful they are everywhere which yeah, makes I mean, it cheap and easy to get stuff for projects. And there are so many aftermarket builders that will build an engine core from scratch. Like I was talking about Donovan and Roddick earlier. Like they will make you Chevy small block cores that are optimized for performance. They're relieved. They're brand new. You don't have to worry about gunk or past abuse. It's just so ubiquitous that you can buy a Chevy small block and build it up as a race or a hot rod motor without actually having any Chevy made parts in it. I got a great example of that sitting, you know, right over my shoulder is a uh, uh, motor built by Blueprint Engines. It's a 396 cubic inch small block. So it's you know, if you if you just think of a Chevy 350 cubic inch, this thing has been bored and stroked and it's got all forged internals with a, a made in America block and, and everything. And it's 396 cubic inches. So you've got this big old displacement motor in a pretty small package and the same goes for you know a lot of the motors you know being made today you know think about the the 57 ls the 6 liter ls the 62 so on and so forth they're all basically the same package with varying internal displacements and the same thing went for gen one small blocks i mean you had what was it the 263 or 265 whichever one was the one that came out in 55. I can't remember. Yeah, it was it's small. It's yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was like 4.3 liters, I, I believe, but you know, it went all the way up to uh 400 cubic inch. I think that was six, 6.6 .6 liter. Um, yeah. so, I mean, Historically, I think later on the C6 Z06 would have had a, uh, it would have had like a 427 that was technically a small block, but yeah. we're well past like Gen 4 at that point. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, so Gen 1 came out in 55 and it was produced all through the years up until, you know, the 90s is when they started to phase out Gen 1. And, th and they were experimenting a lot with different fuel injection systems, carburetor systems and whatnot. But in 1992, 
2, that's when they launched the Gen 2, which um, fell under the LT designation. That came out in the Corvette. So, you know, he had a different, you know, reverse style cooling system, had a different ignition system. There was a lot of shared parts, but this was the first, like, major leap in efficiency and performance. Um, you know, of course, then you have the LS that came out in 97 then the LS based truck motors, you know, Gen that's Gen 3, Gen 4 came out in 05 and then Gen 5 came out in 2014. Uh, you're, you're good at keeping track of that. I, I can't keep it straight after Generation 4. A after the LS1, there's too much overlap and they're in production at the same time. But I will say this, it came out of the gate hard back with the original 265. From the very beginning, it had a remarkably compact platform. It was remarkably light in weight for something that was made of cast iron. It had a forged crankshaft from day one. It had very large valves. It was extremely strong breathing. Uh, with the addition of Rochester ramjet fuel injection, it became one of the first engines anywhere to make one horsepower per cubic inch, which is a little bit of an antiquated measure of specific output, but it was still an important milestone. Consider that in 1965, the beefiest Jaguar E-type straight six you could buy was 265 horsepower. The Rochester Ramjet Chevrolet 327 was pumping out 375 horsepower from 327 cubic inches, and you could rev it up to 7,000 and not kill it. That was unbelievable. And then there was the LT1 in, in 1970, solid lifter, super compact, forged internals, free breathing. Again, rip it all the way to 7,000, even 7,500. You're not going to kill it. It made 370 horsepower uh, before the onset of emissions, and it was a full-blown race motor. That's why if you added options on top of that and made it a ZR1, you would get the ultimate street performance Corvette without the big block. It was the LT1. It was the small block with the ZR1 package that was the real racer's choice. And it just goes on and on. There's so many stories about that Chevy small block. It raced in Can-Am and it won. It was a formidable race engine from the drag strip to the road course. There was nothing it couldn't do. It was a prolific winner everywhere. And let's not forget, it powered a hell of a lot of pickup trucks and station wagons along the way. That's why you can get them so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's a fact. And in, in a lot of ways, again, it is still with us because it's the build of choice. If you want to build like a standard you know, 32 Ford hot rod today, uh, you go out and, you know, you get a full forged internal domed piston, solid lifter, Chevy small block, and you wind up with some outrageous power output for the size of the engine. This was just a great era for great American engines. And I've actually got one from the same era, but, or, or you, so you look like you got something else to say about the Chevy. Well, I was going to say, because, um, you know, a lot of people will talk about, you know, the, the, the pureness of keeping, you know, the, the, a like motor with the manufacturer and stuff. And the reason people gravitate towards the Chevy small block for all of those vintage builds is, you know, the, the, is the compact size. If you look into, you know, more late model stuff um, like the uh, Ford mod motors and even newer stuff like the Coyote motor and all of that, um, they're huge in comparison, like with the Ford small blocks of the, you know, 60s and, and forward, you know, they were relatively similar in size to the Chevy small block. But once they started going with the overhead cams and all that stuff, I mean, the motors just, you know, ballooned outward like crazy. So in a lot of those vintage cars, you don't have that room. So the Chevy small block is a great option. 
Yeah, and just remember that a lot of other companies that came out with V8s, overhead valve V8s during the 50s, they didn't get anywhere near the power density of the small block. Think Studebaker, the Buick Nailhead, the Ford Y block. None of these were able to match the ongoing evolution of the small block Chevy. Uh, Buick and you know, Ford had to go to next generation engines. We got like the FE and the MEL from Ford. Uh, Buick abandoned the nail head in the late 60s. Uh, Studebaker, you know, they had to go with a full bore speed shop with the Granatelli brothers to get R3 kind of power out of the Studebaker V8. The Chevy small block endured and it endures. And it's still an awesome choice today. But it was not alone in GM. In the hierarchy of General Motors in the 1950s, the Cadillac overhead valve V8 stood above all. Now, this is an engine that is well known for being a solid, sober, smooth cruiser. But right out of the gate from 1950, it was also a very successful race engine. So quick flashback to 1949, General Motors, Cadillac Division, and Oldsmobile Divisions have been working on modern overhead valve V8s. They have hydraulic lifters. They are supremely better breathing than the flathead engines that came before, and they're incredibly compact and relatively light for what they are. The Cadillac debuted with 160 horsepower and 331 cubic inches the very next year at the Carrera Panamericana. Uh, two Cadillacs finished second and third at a race better associated with the likes of Alfa Romeo and Porsche. Uh, then it continued in 1950 at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, an Allard J2 with Cadillac power finished first in class and third overall. Unless you have any doubts about the total Cadillac package, a stock Coupe de Ville in the hands of Brig Cunningham's uh, team, actually finished 10th overall at Le Mans in 1950. It was a real performance engine. And like the Chevy small block, it had the potential to grow. Yeah, so a little while back, I had the chance to uh, shoot a video on a 59 Coupe de Ville. Um, it was a test vehicle from Diamondback Classic Radial Tires. And it was a 390 cubic inch and uh, paired to a four-speed hydromatic transmission. Now, it was really cool. You could actually order a uh, performance option for that motor that would uh, boost power, you know, pretty pretty decently. It was basically, uh, instead of the stock four-barrel carburetor, you had uh, triple deuces, three two-barrel carburetors. So you would have one in the middle that would operate like your your day-to-day, -day, you know, cruising type stuff. But you lay into the throttle and then all three of them open up in unison and just suck all of the air in um so it, you know cadillac they, they, they were coming out with you know just about anything and everything to make sure that they stayed on the totem pole as as the the standard of the world as they would as they would say but uh speaking from experience you know that that motor definitely was healthy but it was so beautifully smooth and quiet. The refinement of, you know, especially in that era and stuff compared to, you know, what we see now. I mean, I mean, you, you, you were getting something special. Yeah, and it's important to remember that if you look at some of the competing engines from the period, like the Lincoln Y block, which was separate from the Ford Y block, uh, the Lincoln Y block, for example, was in the 56 and 57 Continental, um, or the Chrysler Hemi, the Cadillac was lighter and more power dense than both. And Chrysler quickly ran up against the limits of their first generation Hemi. It was very heavy. It was very complicated to build. It wasn't necessarily more powerful than competing products. And if you look at the 
evolution of the Cadillac V8 from 1949 to 1959, it went from 160 to 345 horsepower in the space of 10 years with the same fundamental architecture. It went from, uh, I think, a, a double-barreled carb to a four-barreled carb to dual quads and ultimately the six-pack in the the... 58 and 59 Eldorados, it continued evolving through the 60s. And in 1963, it was redesigned heavily, although it was the same fundamental architecture. It was lighter by 50 pounds. Um, a wonderful change to what I guess you could call the long block was that all the important stuff like the power steering pump, the distributor and the water pump were moved from the back to the front on a single aluminum bracket. Uh, wonderful if you've ever tried to reach a distributor underneath a cowl. Um, and then finally, in 1964, it stepped up to 429 cubic inches. And at that point, it was making 340 horsepower, 480 pound-feet, and it still had that peerless smoothness. There was a lot of valve noise on the first-generation Chrysler Hemi. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of energy density in the Lincoln Y-Block. The Cadillac was just pretty much perfect for its intended purpose, and I don't think its intended purpose included Le Mans or the Carrera. Fantastic. <laughs> so that is Cadillac. And uh, I, I think you can actually, you can keep this crazy train rolling. So you got something else in mind. Yeah, let's let's go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum and talk about the VW air-cooled flat four. Yes. <laughs> talk about enduring. Oh my gosh. This thing was produced between 1936 and depending on the market, 2006. Okay, that that pretty much takes the cake. I knew the Beetle was in production until 2003. I didn't realize this thing lived on to 2006. It's absolutely wild. I mean, obviously, there were a huge myriad of changes over the years and different displacements and, and different forms of carburation, you know, some fuel-injected applications. I mean, there's no way to talk about it all, but you know, they, they didn't make as many, you know, as, as Chevy small blocks only between like, you know, 20 to 30 million, but you know, it's 30 million. <laughs> just 30 million. It was not a hundred million, but it's just 30 million. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, the, the, the cool thing about these motors is, is one they're air cooled. They have no, they have no water. They have no coolant. It, it is, it is cooled by air. And if you haven't seen one of these in person, there's a big old shroud in the engine bay that houses this fan, and it all, you know, runs off of the same pulley system as as the generator unit or alternator, depending on uh, how it's set up. And uh, there's different plates and covers in the engine bay, different seals and stuff that are designed to keep the exhaust heat out you know keep the keep the whole all that kind of stuff so you don't end up baking the engine at the same time but it's it's really fascinating you know how they channel everything to where you know the right amount of air gets sucked in to where the car can just sit and idle without moving and still cool itself it's it's pretty neat and the cool thing is that it could be anything you want it to be it could be the bone stock engine for your camper it could be an absolute hot rod mill with 170 horsepower and a dual carb manifold uh, it, it can be assembled like a jewel with every single piece machined and detailed and it, it could be whatever you want it to be and there are plenty of torrid like cow look super street bugs still running around with these things fully built matched balance 
blueprinted, squared, honed, all of that stuff. It could be your hot rod engine. It could be your historical builds. And again, in anything from a truck to a Carmen Ghia. There's actually a drag strip that's right down the road from me that uh, hosts a big VW event. Uh, I think it's a couple times a year or so. So every now and then I'll be in the out filming a, a car review or something, and I'll be like seeing all these dune buggies and beetles flying up and down the road with that just quintessential sound. They they there's nothing else that sounds quite like an old school VW Flat Four, you know. They were not powerful, you know, like you said, you know, hopped up and everything, you know, 170 some horsepower, whatever. But in a Beetle, that's a lot. This is that's yes. a that's a very lightweight, very small car. You know, the the buses have a little bit more weight to throw around, but that's that's good power out of one of those things. I mean, you know, in their stock form, they weren't very powerful, but they're incredibly simple. You know, the whole thing was you you could you can fix these things with just simple hand tools. It didn't require a doctorate degree in, in, in mechanicals to, you know, figure out how to work on one of these things. No, my stepdad had a series of bugs and each bug had a series of engines. And he said it was great. You would go down to the Volkswagen store. They would give you an engine. You would jack the car up. There were four bolts. You removed the four bolts. It came off the car and you basically just you could rebuild it or you could just put a new engine in and it was that simple you could rebuild a carburetor in 20 minutes um the thing was basically air and oil cooled there was nothing to worry about there was no plumbing running around the perimeter of the car and uh, i think volkswagen used to boast that for every volkswagen it brought into the united states it supplied enough parts to rebuild that volkswagen and it might have just been a boast but it emphasized an important point that the Volkswagen Flat 4 was the first foreign car engine in the United States that was matched with a real manufacturer commitment to provide parts and service everywhere in America. That and is really cool. That was the fact. Because before then, yeah, the Jaguar XK6 was great. But if you lived in Missouri, you just weren't getting parts. No one knew what to make of dual overhead cams. Jaguar wasn't committed to supporting them. Volkswagen realized that if you want success, you've got to make sure that the product is maintainable, either cheap enough that you can replace parts or simple enough that you can fix them yourself, and that there will be people who speak English in Mississippi and Missouri and Iowa who are able to help you with Volkswagen's backing from Germany. It was not just a revolutionary engine. It was the whole idea of the supply train behind the engine that also made it so special. And that's why it lasted as long as it did. And that's why it has such an enduring following still. I mean, parts are plentiful. You can still go get a new motor if you want. Um, but I mean, the, the, as far as modding, the sky's the limit, just like... Chevy small blocks. I mean, it's it's like the Chevy small block of the German community. <laughs> I will say this. It might be the highest volume engine of all time. And guys, you can let me know in the comments below if I'm wrong about this, but I think it was the highest volume engine of all time with a gear-driven camshaft. Interesting. Go ahead and try to find one that's not some sort of luxury car or a race car. Gear-driven camshafts are really rare. Not unheard of, but between Studebaker and Volkswagen, I think you've got almost all of the post-war engines with gear-driven camshaft. Um, I didn't know that either. Yeah, I mean, and of course today, if you've got a Volkswagen, you have to worry about like, you know, the belt snapping. So the way we were, sometimes progress is an illusion. <laughs> Let's go full circle.
Okay, so we're going to talk about German Engine now, and this is one that maybe, if, if you're not of a certain age, you're not going to relate to it, but the Mercedes-Benz OM617 diesel, it was a five-cylinder diesel engine made from 74 to 1991, and later on in its production life, it would be turbocharged, making a significant amount of power in full-size Mercedes sedans, as well as the C111 concept car, in which it set a number of speed world records for endurance versus pace. Um, this is the engine that people talk about when they talk about the way Mercedes used to be. This was an engine that easily did four, five, six hundred thousand miles without an overhaul. And you would normally think that a five-cylinder layout would not be a recipe for success. There are some balance issues, some weird harmonics. Whatever, Mercedes-Benz made it work. It was a development of the also reliable OM616 straight four, uh, but this engine in everything from luxury cars to taxi cabs helped to build the reputation of Mercedes into the unassailable position it was in going into the early 1990s. Now we all know what happened after that, Daimler Chrysler, Jurgen Schremp, um, decontenting, building to a price, not a standard. But when people talk about the way Mercedes used to be, the car where they would literally just tally up the costs of the best materials and then add a profit margin, the OM617, both naturally aspirated and turbo, is the single most iconic feature of MBs in that era. If you find any of those cars still for sale, nine times out of 10, they're going to be a diesel. Yeah, and they've surprisingly gained a new generation following. Like people in my parents' generation, the baby boomers, venerated these things. And they were among the only 1980s diesels that didn't scare away after the like GM diesel debacle. Like people stuck with the Mercedes diesels. But whereas my parents, you know, in their generation look at them as, you know, the symbols of enduring unassailable Mercedes quality and even status. Today, they have found new life for millennials and Generation Z proponents of biodiesel, which they tend to accept fairly well. Yeah, I haven't seen any of those uh, in person, but I know that has become a pretty big thing. And it, I mean, it, with biodiesel, it's a it's a whole heck of a lot cheaper, too, than than what diesel is at the pump now. So if you can figure out how to make it work, then then go for it. <laughs> Yeah, they, they can run on biodiesel. They can also run on some kinds of vegetable oil, which I've got to think is cheaper than what you're paying at the pump. Gas prices have been coming down decently since summer, but diesel has not budged. It so went down a little bit in my town, but then it went back up like 40 cents. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> it's, at the, it's at the point where like, if you can't literally like go to an Indian restaurant and buy up their waste vegetable oil, uh, there's no point in trying to go diesel these days. The economic advantage, diesel is more of a tool for towing these days and for over the road trucks. Like, light vehicle diesel is making less and less economic sense. Hey, maybe a Mercedes OM617 is in your future if you want to try the other kind of diesel, the one that comes out of McDonald's, not the ground. Yeah, smells better too. <laughs> That's the one thing you will wind up with exhaust that smells like French fries. I'm not even joking. I, I saw it. I experienced it myself. It's not unappetizing, but it is a little weird. <laughs> I will talk about, uh, not in this episode, but a future episode, the Ford uh, 7.3 liter turbo diesel power stroke motor. Um, 
talking about diesel not being economical, like a little, little, we'll take a little side trip here. So I bought a 95 Ford F-350 a while back that has the 7.3. I used to have a 2015 uh, Sierra Duramax uh, GMC. And with everything they've tacked on to diesel motors over the last uh, X amount of years from, you know, death fluid to emissions regulations and basically choking the life out of diesels. And don't get me wrong, the performance a lot of a, a lot of the new diesel trucks, you know, they're they're something to be reckoned with. Um, but a lot of people, especially in my area are not wanting to deal with that. You know, emission systems failing, thousands of dollars in repairs and stuff like that from things were just they were just made, you know, like seven, eight years ago or whatever. Um, but the the older the older non non emissions trucks are really starting to go up in value. Yeah, without a doubt. So definitely if you can find one of those 1980s Mercedes S-Class sedans with an OM617 turbo diesel or not, that's a keeper. That's a car that your grandkids will drive, even if you're our age. With like 500,000 miles. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. You, know, you have all those badges on the grill, that, you know, Mercedes diehards and like long-term owners, you know, 100, 200, 300,000. Um, you're you're going to see all of those. And the great thing is that the Mercedes-Benz cars from the era of this engine are the kind of Mercedes cars that will last generations. So you've got one that is performance royalty. I'm not going to steal your thunder, but Kyle, you know which engine I'm talking about. The Chrysler Hemi. Oh, my gosh. So you you already touched on this a little bit, but what, what some people may not know is that there's actually three iterations of what is classified as a Chrysler Hemi. You've got the first one that was made between 1951 and 1958, but that actually wasn't branded as a Hemi. Hemi comes from the, 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 the design of the combustion chambers, hemispherical combustion chambers. Um, and basically, you know, while it wasn't branded as a Hemi originally, it did give them a very unique engine architecture that is unmistakable when you see it. Like, especially when the uh, the letter car first came out, the, the Hemi C or the, the C300, I think it was originally called. Those motors were a work of art. The dual yes. breathers and, and the gold painting and whatnot. I mean, they were just beautiful. But um, it wasn't until the second iteration in the mid-60s where it really turned a performance route and when the Hemi branding first came out. Do you know actually why, um, you know, they, what, what the whole purpose of reinvigorating the Hemi was all about? I'm guessing they wanted to go racing. Yes, like everybody was trying to do in the 60s. You know, the muscle car era was alive in the well. So they came out with the 426 cubic inch Hemi, which translates over to seven liters. Basically what the, the whole, the biggest, the biggest advantage this motor had was the size of the valves. So the, the hemispherical combustion chambers allowed for much bigger valves um, while still being able to match up with NASCAR's two valve per cylinder regulation that they had back then. So all you know, motors had to be two valve motors. Um, but, 
you know, Chrysler came up with their own design. It allowed them to fit larger valves than normal compared to stuff from, you know, GM and Ford. So obviously the motors breathed well. They performed well. They actually had a funny nickname. It was called uh, uh, the elephant motor uh, because it made, you know, a bunch of power. It was a large motor because, yes. you know, because of the valve design and, you know, the way they were spaced out, they had to have these big old valve covers and stuff. And the motors were just, they were massive. They were heavy. Um, you know, it, it made 425 gross horsepower and 490 pound feet of torque. So it, it, it was an elephant. <laughs> there's the elephant and then i maybe maybe i'm a little bit of like a man out of my time but i was a if you're a first generation hemi fan that's the whale so you've got the whale in the 50s and you've got the elephant in the 60s until 1971. so when the whale hemi debuted the idea was to create chrysler's first overhead valve v8 they were coming out of a long period of success with flathead straight eights and they were a very conservative company the one thing they decided to do that was ahead of the rest of the industry was go for maximum volumetric efficiency in 1951 they were still using semi-automatic transmissions they still had frumpy high-roofed cars that were designed for old men with big hats but they had the firepower hemi and ultimately, what made it so distinctive was that it had that enormous domed combustion chamber that Chrysler had developed during World War II in aeronautical engine prototypes. But the problem was, in order to have that huge domed uh, combustion chamber, you needed to have valves that were effectively one on each side so that their angles were split like a V. And the result of operating those valves was the most advanced and frankly expensive and complicated valve train on any American car of the 50s. It was advanced as any twin cam engine, but you had a rocker shaft on each side of the cylinder head. And then you had overarching tappets that were diagonally sort of arrayed along the line of the cylinder head. And so you had this double rocker, double tappet cylinder head that was a mile wide, a deck height that was super tall, and ultimately, you know, you're looking at a first generation Hemi because the spark plug wires sit in a little channel on the valve cover and they go straight in through the top of the valve cover. Uh, and it, it delivered in, I want to say it was 56 with the 300B. There was a dual quad upgrade that became the first American engine to make one horsepower per cubic inch. And then in its ultimate form in 1957 and 58, there was a crazy um, 390 cubic inch solid lifter version of this thing designed for racing, which you had to order with a manual transmission. And that made just under 400 horsepower. And keep in mind that when it came out in 51, it was making 180. By 1957, it was making 390. And the last call for it was the 1959 Imperial Crown because they were using leftover engines in the flagship. It had a short production run. But you could get a version of it on every Mopar except, I believe, Plymouth, which did not get a Hemi. Yeah, it, you know, gosh, it's just that's just so cool. <laughs> there were so many cool things happening in the fifties, and you know, the the second iteration of the Hemi, you know, it, it didn't last past the emissions era, unfortunately. Once once things started to get stringent, uh, I think they discontinued it after nineteen seventy one. Um, but the rebirth of the Hemi in two thousand three. 
basically uh, you know, re reinvigorated the Chrysler brand, at least for the trucks at first. And then, you know, the cars came out and we're still, we still got Hemis all over the place now, at least until after uh, 2023. <laughs> well, you know, we, we went from the whale to the elephant to the elephant. Yes, so, I forgot about that. I was going to mention that the the thousand horsepower Hemi crate motor. So this is your Mopar barnyard, guys. You got to get it right. Uh, fun fact: if you're looking at a top fuel dragster, any really high end, generally blown NHRA car um, that's using a heritage Hemi architecture, it's generally the architecture of the original whale engine rather than the subsequent um, elephant, because the elephant was designed more for high operation use on NASCAR tracks. Um, and for whatever reason, the original whale is just a more robust architecture if you need somewhere between four and a half and like 13 seconds of like limitless power. Don't know why that is, but maybe it just takes better to forced induction. Uh, another fun fact, if you get one of the 2003 to present Hemis and you ever take off the cylinder head, it's not quite a Hemi. I would describe it as, okay, take an avocado and slice it the long way from top to bottom take that one half and that's about the shape of the current generation hemi head <laughs> i'm hungry now yeah right we got all these animals and edible items and you know a great way to end this um would be a, a tim's cars you forgot because i've got two mopars for you this is going to be another recurring series but okay let's jump back to the malaise era we were seeing all sorts of crazy things everything from brickland to excalibur and we'll revisit the neoclassicals in a future episode but chrysler was actually on track for a bankruptcy faster than the perennial weak man of the auto industry, American Motors. And things were getting pretty dark by the late 1970s. For whatever reason, and I will never understand exactly what they had in mind, some say it was the result of a military contract that never bore fruit, but they decided that they needed to create a miniature snowmobile. And in 1978, they began selling the Snow Runner. It was Chrysler branded. It was the Chrysler Snow Runner. It had an engine that was a two-stroke, 134 cc, with seven horsepower, built by Chrysler Marine, the division that focused on marine engines. And it had a speed of about 25 to 35 miles an hour. It looks like someone converted the back end of a snowmobile with a single human ski and then bars from a BMX. And that in, in Hemi Orange, and I do not kid you, in Hemi Orange is exactly what the Snow Runner was. They made 28,000 of these things before production ended in 1982. And if you want to buy one today, you'll pay between three and $4,000. It's got a headlight. It's got a little track thing on the back that pushes the snow. And assuming that you have two-stroke competence, you can get it running pretty quickly. It makes a hell of a racket and emits visible emissions. But you're going to have more fun than a barrel of monkeys because it's a miniature snowmobile that you can pick up and carry. That is the strangest thing I've heard in a while. I'm going to research that after we get off this. Yeah, check out the Chrysler Snow Runner. It's like things you never knew existed. The other one was... 
maybe even more bizarre and definitely less common. There were at one point almost 30,000 snow runners in the world. But if you recall, the short-lived Chrysler Aspen, which was a luxury version of the second generation Dodge Durango, well, they made the Aspen from 2007 to 2009, and it was a Newark, Delaware plant that it shared with the Durango. So far, nothing super odd about this. People probably dimly remember the Aspen. They definitely remember the Durango. But for one partial model year, just before the Chrysler bankruptcy, they launched a hybrid version of the Aspen and the Durango, which was Chrysler's first ever hybrid. Now, because the factory closed almost immediately with the bankruptcy, the combined number of Aspen and Durango hybrids sold was less than 800. So if you're looking for one of the rarest Mopars of all time, and yes, you better believe it is a Hemi hybrid, this could be like the under the radar collector car of 2045 that no one sees coming, especially when you consider that most of them were Durangos. Who knows how many Aspen hybrids are out there, but find one first before you guess, because they are nowhere to be seen. That's hilarious. You know, we've been talking about future classics and stuff like that. And, you know, it's so hard to tell. But at the same time, there are a lot of very obscure vehicles over the last 30 years that a lot of people just wrote off as, oh, that's nothing special. And and some of them are some of the most special at this point. Like, <laughs> you know, you never know that that might be the next big thing in 30 years. I guarantee you like transitional technology cars that were like between the internal combustion and the EV era, uh, you know, they're going to be like those Chrysler semi-automatic transmissions of the late 40s. It's weird and fun and cool because it has like one foot in each age of the automobile. And the fact that you're never going to see, I can't remember the last time I saw a Chrysler Aspen, much less a hybrid version. And again, just rarity sometimes becomes important in and of itself. And this is an example. So if you guys are out there and you see a Chrysler Aspen with a hybrid, you might want to squirtle it away for a few decades in the shed. You never know what might wind up on the lawn at Amelia Island in 30 and years. send us a picture. Yeah, please. Please send a picture, especially if it's still stock and not rolling on 24s. <laughs> Kyle, where can they find us online? I'm SobKylo4 LLC on US. Sorry, I forgot my social platforms Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and just SobKylo4 on YouTube. Check me out at Tim Masso on Instagram, including my recent on the road Bugatti EB110 sighting in Geneva. I'm Tim. He's Kyle. This is the Drive and Dive. And thanks for logging on.